0: good morning. What a joy it is to see all of you here today. It's warm in here, and so we're delighted for that today. Amen. Would you join me as we put our voices to worship together today? We sing to the King. We worship the King together today. Stand together and let's sing together.
1: Oh, worship
2: the King.
0: this is the house of the Lord and may our worship be right today I'm so thankful for our pastor's message and continuing in John chapter 2 that last half where Jesus clears the temple because he knows that the temple is a house of worship and it is a house of the Lord may we declare that today amen so that as we're in the presence of the Lord today There is nothing else that can utter from our lips than the words, Hosanna, praise is rising. You worship as our praise team sings. our voice to our praise today and we have something simply just to say to the Lord Lord here I am to worship with all that I've brought to this place today God seeks to do amazing things in our lives today so would you join us together as we sing these songs of worship and stand together and say to the Lord here I am to worship lift your voices together
2: Love.
3: Let us bow together as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts rejoice this morning because we are able to come and worship and sing and be thankful for the fact that you did purchase our pardon on Calvary and that your sin, your blood, covered the multitude of our sins. Father, we thank you for this precious time of worship this morning. We thank you for this church and where you've planted it in this community so many decades ago and father we thank you for the ministry that we have through this body of christ as we approach that time of worship father where we will open our words and where we pray father that each of us will open our hearts and our minds to hear your word we know that your holy spirit has led our pastor to hear the message that you have laid upon his heart for us today and that father we will be receptive vessels to that message father we thank you now for the for the decisions and the victories that will be won this morning in the hearts and lives of many father we do pray that as we rejoice at the gift of salvation that if there are those present this morning that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that, Father, the conviction of the Holy Spirit will be upon them today as we hear your word, that they too will come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that we, as we just sang, can all together rejoice and spend eternity in that mansion that you prepared for us in heaven. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We just pray that you use each of us as your instruments to take your message to others. For it is in your holy name that we pray. Amen.
1: I've been blessed with so many things. God's been so good to me I have family and friends Who share in all I do Yet if I lose it all And I am left, I'm left with nothing till you find and longing
4: We'll Turning your copy of God's Word to John chapter 2, John chapter 2 verses 13 through 17. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Who argue with a message entitled Indignant About Irreverence. So John chapter 2 verses 12 through 25. A lot of y'all came in here after we started the service. It's good to see. When we first started the service, we didn't hardly have anybody in here. Good to see y'all here. John chapter 2 verses 12 through 25. We're going to pick up at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple, from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. It was a busy time in Jerusalem. Passover was one of the major pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish people. And every adult male who lived within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem had to attend, but many others did as well. In fact, the population of Jerusalem and the surrounding area would swell to about two and a quarter million people during Passover. How many of you have ever been to LSU on game day? Anybody been to LSU on game day? You know how crowded that campus is on game day. But that's about 200,000 people on a 2,000-acre campus. Jerusalem was only 400 acres and two and a quarter million people were coming into that city. It must have looked like ants on an ant pile during that time of Passover. There wasn't a cluster of hotels at every exit off the interstate leading into Jerusalem. And so people had to camp out all over the place. And what inns there were were jammed and everything was crowded. So, that's so many people traveled into Jerusalem because Passover was such a big deal. It, it was a time of celebration. It was a time filled with much expectation, much as we experience around Christmas. And because of so much travel... The Jewish tradition required an entire month of preparation. There were roads that were repaired, bridges were rebuilt or shored up, and uh, even the sepulchers were re-whitened so everything looked nice for the travelers at Passover. And with so many people coming into the city and the surrounding area, it was a big time for commerce. I mean, like Black Friday and Cyber Monday and the whole Christmas buying season, everyone was cashing in on Passover, uh, no doubt, uh, as Jesus and his companions traveled up to Jerusalem, they passed all kinds of people who were selling trinkets and souvenirs, and everybody had their hand out. Everybody had something to share. Now, I don't, I don't really know what the souvenirs were for Passover. Maybe it was a bobblehead of the high priest or a. A t-shirt that said, I went to Passover, but all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I'm not real sure what they were selling along the road, but I'm pretty sure many of them were selling things travelers needed. Food, extra clothes, other things that they might need. And it was as busy as any open-air market you might see today. And all of that outside the city and probably within the city too didn't bother Jesus near as much as what he found when he entered the temple complex. Now, the temple was an imposing site in first century Jerusalem. The entire complex was the size of about 16 football fields stacked uh, end to end and then all the way across about eight uh, football, eight across, two high and eight across, about 16 football fields. That's a huge space. And the walls were high in the main sanctuary that housed the, the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, rose several stories high above the city. And I can only imagine the sight as Jesus stepped into the large open court of the Gentiles, itself the size of several football fields. There were peoples and animals and stuff everywhere. Over there, they were selling cattle. Over there, they were selling sheep. Over there, they were selling doves. And everybody was trying to compete with somebody else. Perfect lambs for sacrifice, get your dove here, I've got a good rate on a bull right over here. And the noise and the smell of the animals alone would have been enough to have driven anyone crazy. But The selling of these animals actually had begun as a necessary service. It was, a, it was nearly impossible for a traveler who lived at a home far away and was traveling into Jerusalem to be able to bring along his sacrificial animal Much, the the journey would have been difficult to care for that animal. But even there, it'd be very difficult to bring that animal on a journey without it becoming blemished in some way. Because sacrifices had to be perfect. And so the animals that were sold at the temple had the priest's seal of approval. They were unblemished. And so travelers could come in, buy their sacrifice there at the temple and offer it to the Lord. It was a convenient practice. But unfortunately, what began as a service had become a racket. The sellers and inspectors in the temple sold all the sacrifices. And we find out from rabbinical literature that these inspectors uh, spent a great deal of time learning their craft. They spent about 18 months out on the farm learning the differences between a blemished and an unblemished animal. And they had even developed the ability to look at an animal that is perfect today and see if it might develop a blemish later on. And so these guys had a a, a pretty good thing going because they realized that the only animals that could get through were animals that passed by them. And so if they didn't approve of the animal, it could not be approved. And so over time, extortion started occurring. They realized that they could just about reject every animal that was brought into the temple and offer their own perfect animals on the side. Jack up the price because the worshipers had no other option and then the priests and inspectors would have it made. And by the time of Jesus, this was the temple business. Even if you brought a perfect animal, you could probably bet it would be found to have some kind of blemish. Or we can tell that this one is going to be blemished later. And so, your sacrifice would be unapproved. So Jesus saw all of this selling of animals happening. And then Jesus saw the money changers. And people were coming from all over. the the Jewish world, and they needed to come in and they needed to change their money to the correct currency, just as you buy it if you travel to another nation. But again, what had begun as a service had become an exploitation. Authorities tell us that money changers charged as much as two hours of a working man's wage to change just a half shekel. They charged the same amount then for every half shekel above the original and so if a man came in with a two shekel piece he would have had to pay an entire day's wage just to change his money and that brought a lot of money into the temple and you can bet that not all that money made it into the temple treasury a lot of it was going into the pockets of the money changers because of their hefty commission on the top but the high priest was profiting as well in fact the high priest was behind it all The high priest at this time was a guy named Annas. And though the Old Testament scripture says a high priest uh, inherited his position as a descendant of Aaron. By the time of Jesus the high priest was being appointed by Rome. So Annas was not a religious man. Annas was a political man. And he was all about cashing in on Passover. In fact the high priest Annas actually sold franchises for space. For the money-changing booths and the different people to sell animals, the temple courtyard was dubbed the Bazaars of Annas. The commotion that must have been within the temple is almost beyond our imagination. And as Jesus looked around, he could not believe what he saw. The temple courts looked more like a market than anywhere else in the city. The noise was deafening. The moos and bahs and coos, mixed with the shouts of salesmen and the cries of buyers, made for a cacophony unlike anything Jesus had ever heard. This is what they call worship. Blood rushed to Jesus' face. He found some cords and he wove them together to make a whip. One person I read said that he did so quickly. I I don't think it was a hurried kind of thing. I think it was thoughtfully, deliberately. But then he let loose. Enough! Enough! I don't know what his lead word was, but it was something that got everybody's attention. And Jesus went through the entire entire temple courtyard waving his whip at at the animals, causing them to run. And that must have been a wild sight because there weren't all that many exits from that temple courtyard. And the animals running like crazy, trying to find an exit, then running out, pushing people aside, them jumping out of the way for their dear life. To the guys selling the doves, he said, get those out of here. The doves would have been in cages, so they would have had to take those and and run out. And to everybody, he shouted, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. He went to the money changers, and I imagine he raked his hand across the tables and then flipped them over. Money going everywhere, guys jumping up shouting, hey man, what you doing? Can you get the scene, the commotion? I imagine coins flying everywhere, guys scrambling around to to get their money and others seeing an opportunity, stealing from the thieves. And if a guy or animal didn't move, the whip went flying. Jesus was hot. Jesus was indignant. Jesus was boiling mad. You might look at that picture of Jesus and think, what's this about? I mean, this isn't the Jesus I know. My Jesus is loving and meek, compassionate and kind. And that's true. There are dozens of scriptures that present Jesus as meek and mild. And he is one who loves us. He is one whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. But too often we've painted Jesus as an effeminate. I wrote a little poem this week to capture that. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, forgiving us all the while. Never does he yell or frown as he walks by in his gown. (laughs) That's not Jesus, though. Yes, he does forgive. Yes, he has a gentle way with us, but he's also strong. After all, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's the creator of the universe. You can't be the master of the universe and be a pansy. I like this passage. Because here we get a picture of a strong and powerful and courageous God man. And this isn't the only place. It's throughout the Gospels. You know, there was nothing mild about the fierce message Jesus sent Herod when he said, Go tell that fox. There was nothing mild when he told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And you know, as I thought about it, Jesus' statements to the Pharisees and Sadducees. We're about as pithy as President Trump's tweets. You're like whitewashed tombs. You brood of vipers. Jesus wasn't always nice. He was strong. He was bold. And on this particular day, Jesus was mad. And why was Jesus so angry? I mean, was he just having a bad day? Rebecca and I call those days GBMs, general bad mood. Was Jesus just having a GBM that day? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning and just a good old fit felt good? Or maybe he was hangry from all the traveling, you know, angry because he's hungry. I don't know. No. Jesus wasn't having a GBM. He wasn't hangry. While Jesus is strong, he doesn't fly off the handle, so... Well, was Jesus angry because people were selling stuff at church? I mean, that's what most people think this story is about. I grew up thinking that. Don't sell stuff in church because Jesus turned over the table of the money changers. But remember, the money changing and animal sales had originally been started because they were needed and helpful. The problem was that they had become corrupted So Jesus wasn't mad only because people were selling stuff in the temple. He was mad at their extortion, yes. But if you think this story just means that we shouldn't sell stuff in church, you've missed the whole point of the story. Frankly, it'd be a whole lot easier if that was the point of the story. Because then all we'd have to say is, just don't sell stuff at church and Jesus won't go all Incredible Hulk on you. But that's not what the story's about. That's not why Jesus was so mad. So what is it about? Why was Jesus so livid? Jesus was so angry because people were missing the point of why they were at the temple. They were there to worship, but there was no worship happening. How could anyone worship with such noise and distraction? Furthermore, how could a Gentile come into that court... And be drawn to God when all the Gentile would see would be extortion and corruption. You see, the, G- the Jews were demonstrating religious irreverence towards God. And therefore, a failed testimony to watching Gentiles. And that made Jesus furious. The temple was supposed to be a place where God showed up. If you'll recall, when the first temple was built... By Solomon. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought in to the temple, a thick cloud filled the temple. That ark symbolized God's presence coming in. That, that, that cloud was the kabod of God, the presence of God. And the cloud was so thick, it says, when God showed up that the priest could no longer perform their duties. If nothing else, that story reminds us that the point of the temple was not the duties that the priest performed, the sacrifices, but it was encountering Almighty God when he showed up and glorifying him. But as Jesus stood there in the temple courts, there was so much commotion that there wasn't room for God even if he did show up. Even his cloud would have trouble finding any room in and among the people. And so Jesus was angry because everyone was missing God. In fact, you might say, even when he was standing right there in the midst of them. So Jesus was indignant about the irreverence that was all about him. The people were reducing God to a system and limiting worship to tradition. And they were causing seeking Gentiles and faithful Jews to miss God. And that can happen to us today as well. When we lose our knowledge of God and what it's like when he settles in an irreverent spirit begins to take root in our life and that kind of attitude can restrict our ability to worship. Now, no, you didn't pass pass by a bunch of money changers on your way in today. You didn't have to buy the stuff you need to use for worship. But we can get distracted, can't we? even in the church. I mean, sometimes the mechanics of ministry can distract those of us leading worship. When do I go up? What do I have to do after I preach? When's when's the next key change? What does that happen? How many times were we doing this song? All of those things can be in our mind and those of us leading worship can get so distracted by the mechanics of worship that we leave here and we've never worshiped those helping can as well. Our courtesy team can be too focused on making sure people get in and out and safely and in and out of cars and the doors are locked when they need to be locked and unlocked when they need to be locked that they never worship. And the media guys can get lost in when do these lights change and when does this slide go and when does this mic go on and when does this might go off and the instrumentalists are are worried about what's coming next and how that's going to go and we can get so distracted that we never worship. And all that irreverence would make Jesus indignant. But it happens in the congregation as well, usually through the distractions that come into our mind. One of my favorite commentators, R. Kent Hughes, said it this way. He said, "'Too often our own hearts can become like that outer court of the temple of Jerusalem. Even while we sit in church, the bazaars of suburbia can be spinning through our heads.' We may be thinking about the next business deal we're going to close, athletic events that await us, shopping trips, bridge parties. Solomon said it all when he said in Proverbs 5.14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's possible to be almost in utter ruin even while we are part of a Bible-based church that's so true. I've been there and I'm sure you've been there. We're famished with the familiar. We're distracted in the holy place. And, and Jesus would be indignant over our irreverence. I mean, even think about your, congreg- your conversations at church so far today and conversations you'll have, conversations you normally have in the comings and goings at church. In the chit-chat moments with fellow members of God's family, what are the subjects? We talk about family Maybe the World Series, ball games that happened Friday night or yesterday or upcoming games for today. Maybe you talk about a project at the house or your garden or what you killed yesterday hunting. None of that's bad. In fact, it all helps us connect and become friends and build relationships. So that's good. Keep it up. But have you also shared with anyone what God taught you this week in your time with him? Have you asked anybody, hey, what's God doing in your life this week? How's he he grown you? How's he done? Because you see, that's the kind of stuff we ought to be talking about even more than all the other things. Church is not a place just to do social life together. It's a place to do spiritual life together. That's why we say we do life together. We unload our burdens. We share our hearts we get real we love each other through the mistakes and struggles the heartaches and sorrows and then in addition we celebrate all the days of triumph and the times of salvation and the seasons of healing and and the days of restoration when you arrived for worship today did you come with a sense of expectancy of meeting with God You know, just last week, Danny Nation and Kevin Bowles, both at different times before the first service, said something like, you never know if this could be the day when God does something big. That's a sense of expectancy. And they're sharing that with me, even though I generally come into Sunday with a sense of expectancy, gave me a greater sense of expectancy. But I'm concerned that our hearts and our minds are so busy with the bazaars that God couldn't show up sometimes if he wanted to. Or if he did, we would hurry past him and miss him. What happens in corporate worship is predicated upon what happens in personal worship. What happens in the heart of a church is predicated upon what happens in the hearts of the members of that church. When our hearts are full of stuff other than God, it makes Jesus mad. So let's ask this question. What really was at the root of Jesus' anger? You know, a lot of stuff can be at the root of somebody's anger. Pride, hate, fear, unforgiveness, prejudice, hurt. What was behind Jesus' anger? What was the root of it? It was love. Hey, love caused him to pitch a fit? Yeah. As Jesus looked at the bazaars, as he looked at the commotion, as he looked at the people totally missing the point of worship, his heart broke. They were missing the whole point. They were missing God. They were missing the true encounter with God in worship. The cacophony of commotion had caused an erosion in devotion. And Jesus' heart broke. He became indignant over the irreverence. His heart ached and his love welled up inside him with that righteous cry of enough. And I imagine the disciples just kind of stood there wide-eyed as it happened. You know, in high school, I used to sometimes laugh when the coach pitched a fit at halftime. I don't think the disciples laughed on this day. They just watched as Jesus sent everyone and everything scrambling. They stood there as the place grew silent for the first time in years except for the scurrying of people and the animals bleeding and carrying on. And while they stood there, the Spirit brought Psalm sixty-nine, nine to the mind of one of the disciples. And I wonder if as the disciples stood there watching, if one of them didn't just say it. Zeal for your house will consume me. And if the others heard that and and they just simply shook their head in agreement, zeal for your house will consume me. Two important words there, zeal and consume. Zeal means great energy, enthusiasm, and pursuit of something. And consume is a word that even in the original language meant what it means today. It's eaten up or burned up. So Jesus was consumed, burnt up, filled up, eaten up with a zeal for God's glory and his house. We usually get consumed with zeal for all kinds of stuff. A young man might say zeal for a girl consumes him. A business person might say a zeal for success consumes them. We can be zealous about a lot of stuff, relationships and our careers and our hobbies and our dreams... And likewise, a lot of things can consume us. Those things we're zealous about, but also our heartaches and struggles can consume us. But Jesus was consumed with a zeal for the Lord's house. His heart was steadfast. His heart was fixed. And so should ours. You see, while Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm and a reminder about who Jesus is, it's also a check for us. Jesus was angry because all of those worshipers were not consumed by a zeal for the Lord's house. Their hearts were far from worship. Their minds were on other things and so therefore Jesus was cleaning house with a whip. You might know the religious leaders couldn't simply stand by. One of them finally got irritated enough to say something and We pick up the story in verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man for he knew that was in, he knew what was in a man. This was Jesus's first time at the temple during his ministry. It would not be his last time. Every time he went back, he sparred with the religious leaders. And so there's no wonder they hated him so much by the time of the crucifixion. But on this day, Jesus said something they just couldn't get. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. There was no way Jesus could rebuild Herod's grand temple in three days. But Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, the living temple of God, and then his resurrection that would come. You see, Jesus, like no other man, was the temple of God. John has already told us the word was God, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So there's even more to consider here, though, because while there's not a temple to go to in Jerusalem today, there is a temple that you and I and all of us are in charge of, and it's not 901 Main Street. It's the temple of your life. 1 Corinthians 6.19 asks, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit abides in you, then you are a temple of God. So let me ask you this question that's been wrestling in me this week. What would Jesus do if he walked into the temple of your life? What would he find? What would he see going on? The hard part of that is, if you are a believer, he's already there. So it's not what would he see, but what does he see? What's in his way? What is he observing? I hope he won't have to put together a bunch of cords and start whipping, though there have been times in my life he's had to do that and maybe in yours as well, but I really want to prevent that from ever happening again. But what would he do in your life? What would he find there? Is, is there some stuff that he needs to whip out, to, to run out? You know, we need to have a violent reaction to anything in our lives that distracts us from focusing completely on God. Zeal for the Lord's house must consume us. So what do we get out of this story? Well, a whole lot more than don't sell stuff at church, right? (laughs) What we get is this. Check your temple. Check your heart. Check your worship. Don't cause Jesus to become indignant over your irreverence. Make sure that zeal for the Lord's house consumes you let's pray together Lord this morning we come into your presence in worship and we want you to seek out our hearts to open up our temples and if there's anything to clean out to clean them out and so Lord in just a moment we're going to sing a song of invitation that says we surrender all and I pray Lord that That song will be our testimony today. That we truly will surrender everything to you. So Lord, on this morning, we open our lives to you and we pray, Lord, as the psalmist did. Lord, search my heart. And know me. See if there be any anxious way in me. Cleanse me. Lord, do a work in our lives today for those of us who are believers. And then, Lord, for those who are not yet believers, who've yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day when they come to know you as their Lord and Savior. God, help them to see their need. Lord, to turn over their lives to you. Lord, for them to realize that on their own they can't make it, but they've got to have you. They've got to have you forgiving them of their sins. They've got to have you direct in their life. And so, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we give you this time and we focus on you and we ask you to move and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.